0: On June 27th and 28th, 2021, I gave talks to two groups of concerned Catholics in Southern Virginia at the invitation and in support of Father Mark White, a Catholic priest who's to survivor Catholics what Father James Martin is to LGBT Catholics, and who's being run out of the priesthood as a result. Oh, the hypocrisy. It's the hypocrisy, stupid. The fact is, no combination of a focus on evangelization, the Eucharist, and the real presence will overcome the hypocrisy that underlies what is being done to me and to too many survivors, to Father Mark, and to anyone who dares speak out against the, abused of the abuse of the abused. I've decided to record a combined, slightly updated version of the talks I gave in Virginia in order to reflect some lessons learned and take the message to a wider audience. To find my podcast, which is called Sacrificed, go to chriso'leary.com sacrificed or search Google for Chris O'Leary Sacrificed. And since many people have asked, Let me mention that if you'd like to help support my efforts to create this podcast and expose the abuse of the abused by the Catholic Church and the program, or to just help me eat and pay my bills while I'm focused on this project, I've set up a GoFundMe, Chris O'Leary, survivor GoFundMe. Now on to the talk. My name is Chris O'Leary, and I'm a survivor of the Catholic sex abuse crisis. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, I was sexually exploited, abused, assaulted, raped. Abuse that started in my Catholic grade school and then continued at my Jesuit high school. Then things got really bad. When I made the biggest mistake of my life, I went to my archdiocese for help. It was early March 2002, And the original Spotlight articles ran just a few weeks earlier. And then an article ran in the New York Times that named my favorite priest from my childhood. And not just my favorite priest, but one of my favorite people. It was incredibly confusing. Some of my most cherished memories, some of my defining memories were called into question. But, you know, what what am I going to do? It's the New York Times. And confusing really is the best word. I was fundamentally skeptical. I mean, come on, it's Father B. But still, it's the New York Times. So I went to the Archdiocese of St. Louis in early March 2002 for help understanding what I remembered. And my friend the Cardinal, and not the baseball kind, called me back, which is when the abuse of the abused began characterized by lying, manipulation, gaslighting, the runaround, delaying tactics that then escalated more recently into a smear campaign, the Archdiocese of St. Louis making false allegations against me, saying I've made terroristic threats against them, which I haven't. And now it's progressed to shunning all of which is epitomized by my treatment of the Massive Reparation for the Sex Abuse Crisis on September 7, 2018, in the aftermath of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, where I was ignored by the assembled priests of the Archdiocese of St. Louis, as was captured perfectly in the picture that serves as the cover art for my podcast. If you doubt me or my story, just look at the picture. It's indifference brought to life, open, naked, and callous, and devastating to a survivor because it's familiar, but also terrifying, and and because it raises the question, what does it mean? The underlying indifference, the arrogance, which is disturbing and terrifying, the treatment of a survivor out in the open, in front of the press, in a spot crawling with the press, and a lack of fear or accountability, and enabling in-process. So what exactly has changed, actually, despite spotlight in the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, despite Vos Estes Lux Mundi, the Pope's Bill of Rights for Survivors, which isn't being enforced? Which brings me to my friend, Father Mark White, who is to Survivor Catholics, what Father James Martin is to LGBT Catholics, an outspoken advocate, an intercessor. Yet despite the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, the Vatican Sex Abuse Summit in Vos Estes, Father Mark is being run out of the priesthood, for crimes that include speaking up and out against the abuse of the abused, for refusing to enable the entire hierarchy, including the Pope, and that's that's the big question that raises the big question if the hierarchy can do that to me and to father mark out in the open without fear of accountability what else can they justify rationalize doing to innocent children still i refuse to allow what happened to me to happen to anyone else i'll be damned if i allow what happened to me to happen to anyone else. My abuse took place at a Catholic grade school, the Church of the Immaculata in Richmond Heights, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis, just by the Galleria, if you know St. Louis. I was abused by Father Leroy Valentine from 4th to 7th grade, 1977 to 1981. And one of the things that makes this so difficult i've really struggled to put this together is that it happened at the same exact time of the year maybe to the day because my parents were at the Greenbrier, a convention over the fourth of july abuse i largely remembered but didn't understand and in fact i mostly fondly remembered what happened most of what happened i remember feeling singled out special Thus, my use of the term "special training" in a minute at most, my reaction when it was negative or even slightly negative was to be ambivalent. You know, I like the hugs, I needed the hugs, but you know how boys are about hugs. Boys don't like hugs. As for how how he got to me, how he first got to me, he distracted me, but i'll get on I'll give you more on that in a bit. The worst part is is that abuse continued at the hands of different priests at my Jesuit high school, St. Louis University High School, during freshman and sophomore year at least, 1982 to 1984, in the locker room, which is unsupervised, where certain Jesuits like to watch a shower. Some Jesuits like the younger boys, some Jesuits like the older boys. I think my abuse may have stopped in sophomore year because... That's when this particular Jesuit, I kind of aged out of his interest, but it's sick regardless. And the problem is that it triggered me. It triggered the hell out of me. I'm a survivor, and it made it clear to me that I wasn't safe at St. Louis U High. And then something happened. There was an incident in Haiti on a mission trip. Some more on the abuse of the abused. You know the movie Spotlight. My question is, was Spotlight the end of the story or the beginning of the story? I know it seems like Spotlight is the end of the story, kind of the, the build-up to the to the revelations, to the happy ending, the articles that led to the Dallas Charter of 2002 and the reforms. But the problem, the hole in the deal, is Cardinal McCarrick, who had a hand in creating those reforms, those quote-unquote reforms, those supposed reforms And I'd like you to consider what it was like for a survivor, regardless of how spotlight and everything turned out, regardless of what it led to. What was it like for survivors, the reality for survivors to have basically a grenade tossed into our lives, a neutron bomb thrown into our lives? Made all the worse because in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, at least, they do nothing to help survivors still, despite Vos Estes and worse. I went to my Archdiocese uh, of St. Louis for help in early March 2002 as a result of the article in the New York Times entitled Two Paths, No Easy Solution on Abusive Priests that ran March 3rd, 2002 and named Father Leroy Valentine. And I was immediately subjected to a scheme whose aim, I suspect, was to delay, 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 by giving me the runaround and thus create a statute of limitations problem but more importantly the scheme was designed to protect my friend the cardinal who you know is timothy cardinal dolan the cardinal archbishop of new york city and the problem the reason my story gets so difficult is that timothy cardinal dolan who i knew as father dolan Overlapped with my abuser, Father Leroy Valentine, from 1977 to 1979. The solution of the Archdiocese of St. Louis to the problem of Father Valentine and Father Dolan, now Cardinal Dolan, being at Immaculata for the same time, at the same time, from 1977 to 1979, was the classic tactic of telling half truths. You could see this in the Catholic Project Crisis podcast. They'll admit what's obvious. They'll be open, but not completely. You could see this in the narrative the art that the Archdiocese of St. Louis has crafted. They'll admit that Father Leroy Valentine was a bad guy. What they won't admit is that he did anything before nineteen eighty two. In fact, the Archdiocese of St. Louis has committed perjury. They've lied to the court in a legal document of January 2014 that became known as the Matrix. And that's what, that's what gets me, is that the, the Catholic Church and the Archdiocese of St. Louis still feels that they are above the law, that they can do anything that's required to protect the church. And I'm a problem because I can put Valentine and his misdeeds prior to nineteen eighty two which implicates Cardinal Dolan. The narrative that the Archdiocese of St. Louis is trying to craft is that, yeah, Valentine was a bad guy, but he didn't start doing anything until nineteen eighty two But my existence indicates implicates Cardinal Dolan and makes it clear that Cardinal Dolan was exposed to abuse and did nothing, and that's the fact. Cardinal Dolan saw at least some of what was going on, what Valentine was doing to us, and did nothing. Then, in March 2002, Cardinal Dolan, then Auxiliary Bishop Dolan, was allowed to investigate his own misdeeds at Immaculata by Cardinal Regali, who, and I thought that was a good thing, Uh, Because Dolan knew all the players, I didn't realize what Dolan was going to do, which is to cover things up, to fix his own problem. Then Bishop, now Cardinal Dolan, manipulated me and at least one other guy, at least one other Immaculata survivor. There are at least two of us who can tie Dolan and Valentine together. And I actually know of a third guy. I don't know whether he ever came forward and whether he was manipulated, but that's a third guy who can tie together Dolan, Valentine, and Immaculata. What was done was gaslighting, which is more than just lying. It's what's done. It's the lying and other things that are done to a psychologically vulnerable person, a person who's psychologically vulnerable as a result of abuse. And then the Archdiocese of St. Louis joined in with a campaign of discrediting and terrorizing survivors like me. Intimidation, waging a smear campaign, sicking the police on me. And if you don't believe me, look at the cover art for my podcast. If you don't believe that it's possible, look at the cover art for my podcast. All of which raises the question, what's changed? actually, maybe things are better unless the wrong person is involved, which goes to Marie Collins, another survivor, her point about zero tolerance and the problem with a lack of zero tolerance. The reality of the sex abuse crisis is that if the wrong person is is involved in your abuse, then, you know, sorry, it sucks to be you, which is my problem, which is the The nature of my case, which is why I'm being treated the way I am. Yes, I was abused. Yes, Father Valentine was a bad guy. But, you know, Cardinal Dolan was involved. So sorry, sucks to be you. An attitude which can only be of Satan. So what I hope you do upon hearing this, I don't want you to leave. I want you to stay and fight. I want you to join me and us, the survivors as Father Mark White is. So one of the stories that's that's hard to tell is that within, within days, weeks at the most, at the Church of the Immaculata in Richmond Heights, Missouri, just up the hill from the Galleria in St. Louis, if you know St. Louis, right by Highway 40, within days or weeks at the most, Mrs. Glarner, who ran the after-school program, saw that there was something wrong with Father Leroy Valentine, our new priest, our brand new priest who had just been ordained in May of 77. So Mrs. Glarner went to Sister Helen, just walked the 30 feet or so from the doors of the gym to Sister Helen's office. And told Sister Helen there's something wrong with this Valentine guy, with this new priest they sent us. There's something wrong with him. There's something wrong with how he dresses. There's something wrong with how he interacts with the kids. I don't I didn't I haven't heard all the stories, but basically Valentine from what I understand, Valentine was wearing short shorts that were incredibly tight, like the shorts that the short shorts that girls wear but do this on a guy. Yeah, it was the seventies, but still. And and I imagine there was a bulge. And that freaked out Mrs. Glarner, who then went to Sister Helen, and it really, it concerned Sister Helen at least. And Sister Helen then went to Monsignor Flavin, our pastor, Monsignor Cornelius Flavin, our pastor. And Monsignor Flavin told Sister Helen, okay, where did this happen? If it happened in the school, then that's your concern. If it happened anywhere else on a Immaculata, then that's my concern, and that's none of your business. That's none of your concern. And since this happened in the gym, since this stuff that's going on with Father Valentine happened in the gym, it's none of your concern, and you need to leave it alone and leave it lie. I'll handle it. I'll deal with the problem. But, of course, Monsignor Flavin never did anything about it nothing changed. And as a result, kids weren't just sexually exploited, they were sexually abused. They weren't just sexually abused, they were sexually assaulted, just like I was. Father Valentine and it could have been stopped, but nobody did anything. Nobody had the courage to do anything, which stands in sharp contrast to Father Mark, who can't not do anything. He has the completely appropriate human response of being pissed off and agitated and irritated and unwilling to just sit there and watch it happen. The human response of Father Mark stands in sharp contrast to what happened at Immaculata when Mrs. Garner told Sister Helen, who told Monsignor Flavin, and everybody just left it lie. I noticed Father Mark started following me in about 2018 or so, around the time of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report I had been tweeting for, since the beginning of the year, basically. And apparently what it did to Father Mark is it disgusted him. He knew it was wrong, and he was told to shut up about it, and he refused to shut up. He refused, Father Mark refused an illegal, if not immoral, order, and he's being defrocked for it. And the irony is that Father Leroy Valentine, my abuser, who abused me and at least one other person during the Sacrament of Confession, which is supposedly an excommunicable offense, was never defrocked. Father Mark White is doing for survivors the same thing that Father James Martin is doing for LGBT Catholics, and Father Mark is being thrown out of the priesthood for it. What about survivors? That's the question that I've asked over and over again on my Twitter feed when I see the Catholic Church talk about how much they care about this group or that group. And it's great that the Catholic Church cares about migrants and refugees, but what about survivors? And it's funny and telling and encouraging that Father Mark sees that question and that it drives him crazy and that it drives him to speak up and out for survivors in my experience he's unique or nearly unique among diocesan priests. The priests in St. Louis won't even look at me. If you don't believe me, just look at the picture of the mass of reparation. I did have one priest in St. Louis who would engage with me, but now he's gone quiet. I wonder if he's been given an order comparable to Father Mark to the order that Father Mark was given that ordered him to that has ordered him to stay quiet. Father Mark refuses to stay quiet. But you'll say, Father Mark swore an oath to follow orders. I don't know the nature of that oath, but I do know something about oaths and legal and illegal and moral and immoral orders. In the military, you have to follow an order as long as it's an lawful order. And in this case, you know, we're talking about a priest in particular yes, they have to follow orders, but they only have to follow moral orders. They don't have to follow immoral orders. And I find that the treatment of Father Mark and anyone who wants to speak up about survivors incredibly ironic and hypocritical, given how the Catholic Church embraces and reveres people who resisted the Nazis before and during World War II. St. Maximilian the students of the White Rose, Sophie Scholl, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yet the Catholic Church abuses the abused. It casts out objectors to the treatment of the abused, to the abuse of the abused. It's the hypocrisy that is going to absolutely kill the Catholic Church. To paraphrase James Carville, it's the hypocrisy, stupid, stupid, by speaking up and refusing to enable Pope Francis and Vos Estes, at my behest, Father Mark is being threatened with expulsion for the priesthood, if not excommunication, which is incredibly ironic given the history of the church and what St. Mary MacKillop endured. She was excommunicated for speaking up and out against the abuse of children and was excommunicated for it. I would take Father Mark's treatment, his threat of removal from the priesthood, his threat of removal from the clerical state, return to the lay state, as an indication, as a sign that he is doing absolutely the right thing, that he is following in the steps of St. Mary MacKillop, that what Father Mark White is doing is the price of sainthood deadly indifference that's what Father Mark is seeing, and that's a phrase that my friend Dale came up with when I was in Virginia Virginia visiting them in regardless of why what happened happened, the fact is that I know of five guys who are dead, which starts to make what happened, the sex abuse crisis, sound like the Holocaust, the Catholic Holocaust how in the world can that happen? And it's made all the worse by the deaths of indigenous children that are being revealed over the past couple weeks, what happened at the, at the native schools up in Canada. And the scariest part is the indifference, the lingering indifference, the arrogance, the callous treatment, the unrepentant attitude, which you can see in the treatment of me at the of Reparation, and you can see in the treatment of Father Mark White, it's symptomatic. The indifference is symptomatic of a deeper underlying problem. And I've been subjected to the same thing, but Father Mark is right there along with me. You know, what I've been subjected to, Auxiliary Bishop Now, Cardinal Dolan sending me on the wild goose chase, the smear campaign, the false allegations of terroristic threats, despite 2002 in spotlight, despite 2018 in the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, despite the sex abuse summit in the Vatican, despite Vos Estes. That's all been done to me. And Father Mark, he refuses to tolerate it, to enable it. And why shouldn't he just shut up? Because silence is assent. Silence is interpreted as assent. As long as the laity, as long as Catholics are quiet about the abuse of the abused, what is being done to survivors, the Catholic Church will continue to do it because they believe, they can't help but believe that they're doing what Catholics want them to do. Now let me mention church militant, and that's It's one of the reasons I got in touch with Father Mark, you know, finally. I'd known about his work and I'd known about his plight, but when I saw his interview with Michael Voris at Church Militant, that's what really grabbed me and that's what led me to call him. I'm appreciative of the work of Church Militant. Father Mark's shout out on Michael Voris' show led to hundreds of listens of my podcast and, and lots of good things. What I don't like is church militants' use of the term "homo predators" and their general strategy to get the gays. That, to me, is scapegoating. It's very, it's it's indistinguishable from what Adolf Hitler did in World War II with the Jews. Scapegoating the gays is just the same as scapegoating the Jews. The fact is that I was ten, maybe nine, when it started. Others were eight, maybe seven. That's not the gays, that's pedophilia. As for why things spike in the 11 to 14 year old age group and why it's 80% males, well, 11 is when you start serving and when you become vulnerable. As for the 80% male number, there simply were no altar girls back in the day at Immaculata, they were being abused by the crossing guard. The fact is that abuse is abuse is abuse, whether it's of children and men and women. I think the abuse of seminarians is terrible, but I also think the abuse of children is terrible, as is the abuse of women. Let's get rid of the entire problem of every aspect of the problem of abuse in the Catholic Church. As for why I've been terrorized, gaslighted, Subjected to a smear campaign. What are they afraid of? What are they trying to hide? It all comes down to Dolan, Father Dolan, Auxiliary Bishop Dolan, Cardinal Timothy Dolan, Timothy Cardinal Dolan. My first memory of a priest is of Father Dolan. He was at Immaculata from 76, basically summer of 76 to summer of 79. My first memory of a priest, my memory of Father Dolan, was his coming to our class for religion class. And it was it was kind of a rare thing. Generally, as I've said before, the, the priests mostly stayed out of the school. That was Sister Helen's realm. The priests would go everywhere else. They had the rectory and they had the church. One day in third grade, Father Dolan came to my third grade uh, religion class to discuss Mark 8, to 26, which is Jesus heals the blind man in Bethsaida, but he does it in two steps. And don't tell your Protestant friends, but I was taught by Father Dolan, now Cardinal Dolan, that it happened because Jesus made a mistake. That's why he had to do it in two steps. And the reason I remember that episode of Father Dolan coming to the class is that he chose me to play Jesus Christ, to play the role of Jesus Christ, which if you're Catholic, you know, is a big deal. And Father Dolan's message was, you know, Jesus made a mistake. We all make mistakes. We're all human. Jesus was fully human. If Jesus can make a mistake and move on from it, so can you and I, which I thought was a, was a great message and a completely appropriate message and an empowering message. But the problem is, is that in my case, what makes things so difficult for me is that Dolan overlapped with Father Leroy Valentine. Dolan got to Immaculata, you know, May, June of 76. Valentine arrived at Immaculata May, June of 77. And from 77 to 79, Father, now Cardinal Timothy Dolan, overlapped with my abuser, Father Leroy Valentine, at the Church of the Immaculata in Richmond Heights, Missouri. And that's a problem because, first and foremost, Father Dolan witnessed some of it, some of what was done to us, and he turned a blind eye to my and our abuse at Immaculata. The narrative that the Archdiocese of St. Louis is trying to craft is that Valentine didn't start offending until 1982, by which time Dolan and Valentine were were apart. Dolan had moved on to D.C. or something by 1982. The Archdiocese of St. Louis has tried to reinforce that narrative by committing perjury in January 2014 in a document that has come to be known as The Matrix. The Archdiocese of St. Louis in January 2014 as part of civil litigation lied to the court in order to cover up the fact that Dolan, Father Dolan, now Cardinal Dolan, and my abuser, Father Leroy Valentine, were together at Immaculata while Father Leroy Valentine was abusing me and us. I don't know how many guys, but it could have been as many as a hundred. Valentine went after anyone he could get his hands on. And the bigger problem is, is that I've uncovered in January 2020, I uncovered doc- a document that suggests that w- the whole thing that happened wasn't a mistake. The narrative of the Catholic Church is that it happened because they believed that abuse was impossible, technically speaking, because of what's come to be known as the ontological change. Or at a minimum, the Catholic Church was misled by psychologists who told them, yeah, these guys are healed and they're good to go. They're fine again. What I uncovered in January 2020 is a program to manage and protect abusers that was in place by the 1970s. Maybe it's true in the 50s and the 60s that the Archdiocese of St. Louis and the Catholic Church didn't know the problem that they had. But by the 1970s, at least, the Archdiocese of St. Louis had in place a program, the program, to manage, and I fear, but can only believe, protect abusers by the 1970s. And then that raises the fundamental question of if they could rationalize and justify doing that in the 1970s, what else can they rationalize and justify doing now? Especially when it comes to innocent children. Has anything changed these dangerous ideas, which the arrogance and the indifference of the mass of reparation suggest that nothing, in fact, has changed? And I see the same thing going on in Knoxville in the behavior of Bishop Sticka. I know the survivor, I know what happened. I also know Sticka. I went to Sticka for help in 2018 and had a bad experience with him, which I'll discuss at some point. Sticka is protecting an extremely questionable seminarian. A seminarian who who sounds very much like my abuser, Father Leroy Valentine, someone who's completely out of control, a sociopath, a narcissist. And Sticka is blindly knee-jerk reactively. Defending the seminarian he's exercising bad judgment, he's acting like it's impossible when I find it completely possible, and that brings back a similar story in St. Louis from five years ago or so, something that happened at my cousin's parish where they the archdiocese tried to send them a priest who had multiple accusations. My cousin went to me and said, "What do you think about this guy?" And I just, you know, I just shook my head and I said, "You need to fight this guy. This guy, this guy doesn't smell right. One accusation is one thing, but two different accusations are another. Especially when there's a very well organized smear campaign being run against the accuser of one of those accusations. And the scarier thing is that my stuff happened when the seminaries and the rectories were full, when." theoretically, the the Archdiocese of St. Louis and the Catholic Church could have just expelled someone that they thought was a problem, and they didn't. And what's happening? What's possible now? I have particular concern about foreign-born priests. They were involved in my cousin's case. They're involved in the case in Knoxville. What exactly is going on there? Are they more obedient, more compliant, or more troubled? Is that why they're here, because they're more troubled? Why are they being given second and third and fourth changes, chances, just like my abuser, Father Leroy Valentine, was? Has anything changed? So let's talk about what happened at a high level. And to be clear, what happened implicates Dolan, which I think is the problem. Then Father Dolan, now Cardinal Dolan. And to be clear, let me talk about it. I'm going to talk about it at a high level, at a 30,000-foot level. I'm not going to get into the gross stuff, the really terrible stuff. You don't want to hear it. I don't want to talk about it. But first and foremost, let me make it clear. I remembered 95% of what happened to me. I just didn't understand it. I was a kid. I was smart, but I was naive. I was a geek, maybe even a nerd. Many of my memories of Father Valentine and my time with him, those are my most treasured memories. And then the bigger problem is is that Father Dolan and Monsignor Flavin were around when things were happening. They witnessed some of it, and the fact that they didn't think it was a big deal helped to convince me that it wasn't a big deal. So it it all started with a hug. Father Valentine was a very different priest than Father Dolan, Monsignor Flavin. Father Valentine was always around us. He loved kids. He loved to touch kids. He loved to hug kids. He was very warm and open and welcoming. So when Immaculata... Switched from dark, scary room confession. I know I did dark, scary. I made my first confession in the dark, scary room. Did it for some number of times. But when a Macalotta offered face-to-face confession in the cry room, I leapt at the chance I didn't like the dark, scary room. Thus, my use of the term. And what they would do, and as the pictures show, they would take the cry room, which had big glass windows, but they would pull the curtains and they would just put two chairs in that room. it would be you and the priest facing each other. There'd be two chairs in the cry room. They'd pull the curtains, not just the sheer curtains, but they were heavier curtains. uh, So it was completely private. And what would happen is you would open the door and Father Valentine would be there sitting, sitting in a chair. He'd wave you over to the church. It would start, or he would wave you over to the open chair it would start with a hug. What I remember is his, he was he was constantly touching me during the course of my face-to-face confession. I don't remember his doing anything. I know some people have talked about how he was touching them and having him sit on his lap. I don't remember that. What I do remember is that the end of face face-to-face confession, my crotch would somehow but always end up, my face would somehow, but always end up in Father Valentine's crotch. I don't know why. I mean, it bothered me. I did keep going back, I think because of the hugs. On the one hand, I I hated the hugs because they would go on for so long. It felt like, it felt like an hour. It It was really only 10 seconds, but 10 seconds is a long time for a hug. And when I hug kids, you know, I've I perfected the side hug where I just kind of go hip to hip, shoulder to shoulder. That's how I hug kids. Father Valentine wasn't like that. Your your face would end up buried in him. But then that progressed to later on that year. This is the, and when I say I was 10, maybe 9, uh, I was probably 10 when that started. If we made our first, I think we made a confession Each semester, but the odds are, since my birthday is in September, the odds are I was ten when that started. It could I could have been nine when the face to face confession started, but I was probably ten. But that's not. It's not the gays. That's pedophilia. Later on that year, this is Thanksgiving of '77, probably right before Thanksgiving of '77, we had a risk and pizza party, which happened in the rectory. And again, this is difficult because. This stuff was known about. At least some of it was witnessed by Father Timothy Dolan, now Cardinal Timothy Dolan. Monsignor Flavin was also there. And my sense of things is that at some point they stopped. They stopped coming around and just kind of hid in their rooms. They were around, but we didn't see them much. But we were all over the rectory. I don't under—I don't understand how that worked. It started off with wrestling. You know, people talk about grooming being part of the abuse process. There's actually a, a step before that, which is testing, where the abuser tests you to see whether you're going to react to it. Uh, I've got a picture of Number Shirt Guy. He was tested by Father Valentine, and, and Number Shirt Guy basically threw him across the room. I failed the test, and, and basically, what would happen in wrestling is that Father Valentine would accidentally quote-unquote touch you down there and then he was waiting to see whether you would react or not and I didn't react I felt like I had an electric sh- shock went up my spine and I just froze which meant I passed the test and moved on to the grooming phase I've always I've always had this memory of uh, the risk and pizza party you know sitting at the table at a table for four in the kitchen of the rectory. Uh, But what's weird about the memory is that there are only two guys. R is across from me. A is to my right. And to my left is an empty seat where T would be sitting, but T's never sitting there. I think what happened is that T would go into the TV room because I also went into the TV room. T T and I looked a lot alike, and I wonder if Valentine had a, had a type of profile that he liked. But I think what happened is he would pull us out one at a time into the TV room. I don't ever remember playing Risk in the rectory with Father Valentine, but that was that was supposedly the reason we were there, was to eat pizza and play Risk and drink real Coca-Cola, and we would get our own can, and it wouldn't be RC or Vess. It would be real Coca-Cola. And the TV room involved more touching and sitting and then laying down on the sofa with him in front of this old cabinet TV. That then progressed, and, and this is a memory someone else has, has also had, or experience that someone else also had. He calls it haircuts. I don't remember exactly what the pretense was. I do know that I have a thing about my hair. There's a reason why my hair is as short as it is. It's because I don't, I, it completely creeps me out when my hair gets longer, especially in the spring. Uh, I have to keep my hair short in order to be able to concentrate. But this other guy told me a memory that he he remembered the pretense of being haircuts. I just remember being up in the upstairs in the rectory, in Father Valentine's bedroom, sitting on the bed with him. And and the hard part about this memory is that you know Father Dolan is around. The door is open. Dolan knows what's going on. And and the fact that Dolan doesn't react to What's going on is one of the things that reassured me that this wasn't a big deal. I've used the analogy that as a parent, if you react or overreact to something, your kid will react accordingly. If you don't, if you say it's no big deal, the kid's not going to think it's a big deal. And I think what happened is that because Dolan saw what was going on, and I was ambivalent about it. On the one hand, I liked the contact and the attention, but on the other hand, I didn't like where his where his hand was. The fact that Dolan didn't react to it gave me the sense that this wasn't a big deal. And again, remember, this stuff happened for two years. Father Leroy Valentine, my abuser, and Father Timothy Dolan, now Cardinal Timothy Dolan, overlapped at Immaculata from the summer of 77 to the summer of 79 at least. That then progressed to what I refer to as special training. You know, where were my parents? Well, my parents were, they were at the Greenbrier, the same, basically the same exact time of year. They had a convention over the 4th of July every year. And on Monday of that week, I would get a call from Father Valentine, and he would invite me up to to serve the Old People's Mass for him, and then he would show me some stuff in the rectory. And I, I, thought, I thought I was being singled out for that. I thought that was really cool, but it turns out he was doing that with everybody at the Old People's Mass like during the summer especially. And what he would do is he would distract me by telling me some story about how we were working with consecrated hosts and he would teach me the consecration prayer, which you can't do, only a priest can consecrate hosts. It's actually kind of blasphemous what Father Valentine was doing, but Father Valentine knew that I knew the big deal about a consecrated host, which is the real body and the real body of Jesus Christ. You have to be especially especially careful with consecrated hosts and he would give me some task of moving hosts from, uh, from bowl to bowl. But these were consecrated hosts, so I had to be especially careful moving them one at a time from bowl to bowl. And I wouldn't notice what Father Valentine was doing to me down there. And what's weird is I actually have another memory, probably from sometime after that special training, where I'm standing at the door, just feet away from the spot where the special training took place. The special training is just right, right here, to my left. I'm standing in the frame of the door, uh, and I can't walk through the frame of the door. And, and I notice that there are two. I'm there are two guys that I'm serving with T and D. This is like a five o'clock mass on Sunday, and T and D are coming and going in the rector or in the pre site of the sacristy. You know, just at will, no big deal. And I can't step through the frame of the door. I'm just paralyzed. And I only have to walk like 15 or 20 feet to the stage right door of the pre-site of the sacristy, but I just can't. I, I can't set foot into the pre side of the sacristy, I think because I would have had to have passed the spot where the special training took place. So what I did is instead of walking the 20 feet to the door, the 15 or 20 feet to the door, I instead walked like 150 feet all the way around, going out, walking all the way across the altar, genuflecting, and then coming in through, you know, going out through the stage left door, and then coming in through the outside of the stage right door. I I remember that feeling of, why are T and D able to do this and I can't? What's what's the big deal about doing this? In terms of that day and the worst stuff, again, high-level, uh, my memory picks up with my hand on the door, the outside door, the the screen, aluminum screen door, the outside of the rectory. My hands on the door, I go out the door, push the latch, turn right, and I'm in a tunnel. And there's a reason why they call it tunnel vision because it looks like you're running down a tunnel. And I'm not just running down a tunnel, I'm actually floating down a tunnel. My eye level bounces and goes up and then settles back down. I've since come to understand that that's because I hurdled a landscape light that's in the ground on the path from the door of the rectory to the back of the church. Now the thing about tunnel vision is it's not in flashbacks and that kind of stuff. And that, I guess that, that basically was a flashback. Is it's not like in the movies. It's not as frequent in the movies. If you if you watch iRobot or some some other movie that involves flashbacks as a plot device. Uh, the flashbacks are happening every, every day or so. In my case, I only had that memory 15 or so times, which is enough to know that it was a big deal, but not enough to, for it to stand out in my memory and, and make me wonder, you know, what the hell's going on. My last memory that I remember clearly is he took us to a mud cave and, you know, the mud cave trip was was fine. Uh, we just did guy things, caving, you know, on our bellies in mud, that kind of stuff. But what I remember about that memory is the drive back. I was riding shotgun. We had this white, uh, or the, the church had this white uh, station wagon, dark interior. I'm on the bench seat next to Valentine riding shotgun, number shirt guy, Flannel shirt guy and number shirts guy, number shirt guy's dad are behind me, uh, and I wake up, look to my left, and there's Valentine, and I look at him, and he just absolutely disgusts me. I didn't, I didn't know what that meant, but it was a strong enough emotion and a strange enough emotion that I. That it, it stuck with me. It, it's, it's like the memory of being in the back of the sacristy with T&D. It was just so strange that, that it really bothered me. And what bothers me about that memory is that in the mud cave trip stuff is that uh, in the March 2002 article, New York Times piece, uh, Valentine, so it turns out Valentine took everybody on trips. In my case, he took me down Highway 44. I assume it was down Highway 44. Other guys from Immaculata, he'd take down 55 to Lake Wapapello. But in the New York Times piece in March 2002, uh, they describe Valentine taking guys to Paramarquette Park. To to do that, he would have had to have crossed state lines, and that's a that's a violation of the Mann Act, the federal law against child sex trafficking basically so there was a a federal law violation discussed in this 2002 March New York Times piece and to my knowledge nobody ever investigated that no nobody ever looked into it and and I can only think about you know what might have been if someone had looked into exactly what happened then And my my abuse didn't just end in grade school. It continued on to high school. Eighth grade for me was really good because Valentine was gone. And so (laughs) let me take a step back. So in 2018, 2019, I was talking to a survivor. Who was academically devastated by what happened to him and i remember thinking over and over again at least that never happened to me and i had had this thought over the years about you know what the hell happened in high school i did you know i was very smart uh i did i scored extremely well on the entrance test to slew st louis u high got a plaque for it i was one of the smartest guys in the class i think and i graduated in the middle of the class with like a 3-1 or something. Barely made it into college because of that. Thank God I popped a 700 on the SAT. But I never understood, you know. So this guy was academically devastated and I was so glad that I was never academically devastated. And I said so to him, which was really absurd because I was academically devastated in high school. I failed typing freshman year high school. And it took me three years before I had an A, before I got my first A. And I still, even in senior year in high school, was still struggling, you know, a mix of A's and C's. And I never understood what happened. But I've since come to understand that I've kind of pieced it together. And essentially what happened is that the first week at St. Louis U High, we had a gym class, and you were we were instructed that we we had to take a shower after gym class, which, you know, makes sense. You don't want to stink up the the whole place. But so I took a shower, and the thing I noticed is that when I was taking a shower, and this this is an open shower room, you know, four shower heads on one side, four shower heads on the other, no partitions, no nothing, just shower heads sticking out of the wall of a rectangular room. What I noticed is that on the bench, that was outside of the shower room, I guess she, which you threw your towel on or something. I don't know where else she would have put your towel, so maybe that's where we put our towels. Underneath the mirror outside the shower room, there was sitting a Jesuit. Sitting on the bench, looking at me, tearing me apart with his eyes, which is something I don't think men understand, but I think women understand. And all that did, what that did to me, is it made it clear to me that I was, not safe at St. Louis U High. That ruined me for at least two, three years, still affected me for the entirety of my time at at St. Louis U High. It made it clear to me that I was not safe, such that, you know, I basically did no extracurriculars at St. Louis U High, even though I was interested in stuff. You know, I did, I, the only thing I could do extracurricular wise was stuff that I could do over lunch. Because at the end of school, I had to just get the hell out of there. I could do track, but again, I could do track because that was outside of the school. I had to get out of the school. I didn't understand why, but the reality is that it's because of what happened during that first week, that first gym class, that shower freshman year at St. Louis U High. So what happened next? (laughs) I never even, for reasons I didn't understand, I never even considered going to college in Missouri. Ended up. Again, because I popped a 700-verbal, one college in, in Texas, Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, was able to look past my middling grades, gave me a good scholarship. I didn't pay a whole lot for college, thank God. Thank you, Trinity. And I was in Texas from 1986 to 1990, San Antonio, Texas. And simply put, I was a very different person. Because, well, if you know Texas, Texas is nothing like Missouri. Uh, I was a very different person. I was very happy in Texas. Those are some of the best years of my life. I was a completely different person. Not completely clear of it, but mostly clear of it. Stuff did start to pop up. Stuff, some of the gender confusion stuff, tracked me down. Senior year, second half of senior year, and some of the stuff that I'd gotten away from for three and a half years, Finally caught up to me in Texas, but it wasn't a huge deal. Texas was so powerful that I kept kind of moving back to it. I moved back to Texas twice, living in San Antonio in early 91 and then Austin in early 92. Uh, got engaged and moved back to St. Louis in the summer of 92. Which seemed like a good idea at the time, but by january nineteen ninety three I was having problems with depression that I didn't really understand i you know my initial theory was seasonal affective disorder because I'd spent the winters before in Texas. I learned about cognitive behavioral therapy, which was helpful uh, and got me by for four years or so, although it helped that i was I lived in uh phoenix for Phoenix, Arizona, for a little over a year which made things easier, basically 96 to 97. But in 97, my wife and I decided to move back to St. Louis, uh, mostly to be with her dad, who was having health problems. And I wasn't thrilled, I wasn't thrilled with my job. I, I wasn't a fan of some of the people. So we moved back from Phoenix, Arizona to St. Louis in the summer of 97. And I started having, immediately having some signs of serious problems. What in retrospect, in Easter of 97 and then again in August 97 were basically reenactments of what happened, reenactments of the worst stuff. Compulsive behaviors that were terrifying to me because I I thought I was going crazy, stuff I'd never done before, never felt before. But that had to have been triggered by returning to St. Louis. I wasn't great from 97 to 2002, but I was able to function. Uh, And then 2002 hit Spotlight. I didn't notice the the first Spotlight articles in January 2002. Uh, But then in early March 2002, my Spotlight happened uh, the New York Times piece ran, naming Father Leroy Valentine, March 3rd, 2002. I went to the Archdiocese of St. Louis for help. Uh, my friend the Cardinal called me back, Cardinal Dolan. Uh, I told them the memories, and he basically told me that my memories didn't mean anything, and he sent me on a wild goose chase, essentially. It is That's what happened. Is I, t- I told my memories to Dolan. He immediately told me they didn't mean anything. And sent me on a wild goose chase. He did send me to another psychologist, a quote-unquote independent psychologist, who I think was Nancy Brown, the assistance coordinator for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. She told me the same thing. My memories didn't mean anything. That I was just misinterpreting what Father Valentine did and what his intentions were. Misinterpreting was her exact word. I know it's a word that women hear a lot, and I know I know I know how that word can cut. Promise, so I get a. Queen Bill of Health in 2002, and then in 2003, my older son makes his first confession, I have a panic attack. 2005, my older daughter makes her first confession, I have a panic attack. By September 2005, I'm trying to figure out what the hell's going on. I contact David Clossy of SNAP, but never follow up with him. I contacted the, the New York Times reporters who wrote the piece from March 2002 and asked them about it basically asked them if they believed what they wrote. And they said, you know, we wouldn't have uh, run the piece if we didn't believe it, which just left me confused as hell. But it was, you know, what I had going in my head was Cardinal Dolan told me nothing happened. Cardinal Dolan told me nothing happened. Cardinal Dolan told me nothing happened, me nothing happened over and over again. But by 2007, I would lost my job. I was having what, by 2010, I realized was a was a nervous breakdown. By 2009, I was divorced, went into therapy to try to deal with the divorce. Uh, talked about the divorce stuff for most of 2009 uh, in therapy. In 2010, started discussing Father Valentine because I was having pro- productivity problems. I didn't understand what the issue was, but I started to realize I had this sexual stuff. And I had this problem with St. Louis. I was, quote unquote, allergic to St. Louis. I knew there was something wrong with St. Louis by 2010. I didn't know what. I'd also had the problems with, I'd had two more panic attacks in confession by 2010 during Axe Retreats, one in 2008, one in 2010. It was obvious by 2010 that I had a problem with confession. And I had clear memories of my time with Father Valentine. I didn't remember them being anything bad, but obviously... It sure seemed like there was something bad, such that in 2011, after talking about this stuff for six months or so, the Valentine stuff, the, the first confession stuff with Valentine, I went back to the Archdiocese of St. Louis with a very simple question. Are you guys sure this stuff doesn't mean anything? And that's where we get back into the abuse of the abused and the specifics of the abuse of the abused what was done to me by bishop dolan now cardinal dolan and the people of the archdiocese of st louis so again timeline 2002 january 2002 spotlight runs march 2002 the articles in the new york or the article in the new york times runs early March 2002, March 3rd, 2002, I go forward. I have a document that proves that at least one other guy went forward. I know a guy who came forward at the end of March 2002. So by the end of March 2002, Cardinal Dolan, who was handling the investigation of my abuser, Father Leroy Valentine, had three allegations, three separate allegations against Father Valentine, which was enough that they forced Father Valentine to resign. They said he voluntarily resigned, but i'm fairly sure that father valentine was was forced to resign i was never contacted or helped uh after valentine resigned even though you know i'd talked to dolan i'd talked to this therapist they stuck with their narrative that nothing happened even though they it was enough for them to to force valentine to resign i was sent on a wild goose chase by then bishop now cardinal timothy dolan And that's, you know, 2007 to 2010, I'm unemployed, divorced, bankrupt. I have a nervous breakdown. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. But again, this voice in my head, Father Dolan, Bishop Dolan, now Cardinal Dolan, nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. The exact quote is, this is what he told me. This is what now Cardinal Dolan told me in March 2002 is, I've known Leroy Valentine forever. We lived and worked together, or we were at the seminary together. We lived and worked together at Immaculata. I know that he never did any of the things that he's accused of. I know he would never do anything to hurt a child. That's what I had echoing in my voice from 2002 to 2011. Those words of the man that I knew as Father Dolan, then Bishop Dolan, now Cardinal Dolan, those words, nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened, were echoing in my head until 2011, by which point I went back to the Archdiocese of St. Louis in May 2011 basically to ask them, are you sure this stuff doesn't mean anything? I went back to the review team, contacted Deacon Phil Hangan, the head of the Office of Child and Youth Protection, uh, Holy Week 2011. He set up a meeting for May 2011 there were not supposed to be lawyers at that meeting. The Archdiocese of St. Louis had not one but two lawyers at that meeting. Uh, they immediately gaslighted me, telling me they had no record of my conversations from 2002 with Cardinal Dolan or with uh, the, the quote-unquote independent psychologist, who I assume was Nancy Brown. We have no record. We have no idea what you're talking about. And that which makes some of their other statements more than a bit ironic. Some of the statements of the Archdiocese of St. Louis uh, trying to discredit me, saying that my story changed. How can they say my story changed if they had no record of my 2002 conversations with Dolan and Nancy Brown? The Archdiocese of St. Louis then, then proceeded to give me the runaround, to send me on the runaround. And one of the things I remember about that, the aftermath of that 2011 meeting with the Archdiocese of St. Louis and the review team is that Because they told me they had no record of my conversations with Dolan and with Nancy Brown, I left that meeting and immediately drove into downtown Clayton, a suburb of St. Louis, actually right by Immaculata, and spent a half an hour trying to find the office of the woman that I saw. And I, over the course of five years, I must have driven by that spot a hundred times and I was literally unable to see Nancy Brown's office. I was right there a hundred times, but I couldn't see it. It wasn't until like five years later that like St. Paul, that the that the scales fell off my eye and I was able to see the building. It had been there the whole time. I had just driven past it and past it and past it. I couldn't see it. My My memory was hiding it from me for some reason. And then it gets worse. 2013, my abuser father, Leroy Valentine, was... Was permanently removed. I was never contacted or warned or helped by the Archdiocese of St. Louis. My psychologist, who I've seen at the time, had to call me and warn me. Hey, Chris, have you seen it? Seen what? They just remove. They just permanently removed Father Valentine. And the worst part was, on top of all that, of the Archdiocese of St. Louis in 2013 May, treating me like I didn't exist. I found this thing on my arm. Uh, You can see the scar from the surgery. turns out I had a melanoma had developed out of a a birthmark. So in 2013, not only was I fighting the Archdiocese of St. Louis, trying to get help from them, they're denying that I even existed, treating me like I didn't exist. Uh, I was fighting cancer at the same time. And then things got really bad. (laughs) So, you know, I did file a lawsuit in 2015 uh, because of the statute of limitations problem created by uh, Father Dolan, Bishop Dolan, Cardinal Dolan, and the 2011 uh, meeting with the review team. There was a statute of limitations problem. My lawsuit wouldn't go forward. I had to settle it for $15,000, netted $9,000. The runaround that they had sent me on, that Dolan had sent me on, that they had sent me on in 2011 worked, unfortunately, and then things got really bad. By 2018, uh, I so Cardinal Law died at the very end of 2017. The USCCB issued something talking about assistance coordinators. I had spent years and years and years trying to get the help of an assistance coordinator, had never been told of, put in contact with, or told of the existence of an assistance coordinator. So that set me off. I knew the assistance coordinator program and promise was a fraud. So I started writing pieces and started tweeting at Ivan Does Not on Twitter talking about the fact that that was a fraud, which is how Father Mark ended up finding me. I knew the assistance coordinator program was a fraud, and because I was talking about that, the Archdiocese of St. Louis began a smear campaign against me, making false allegations of terroristic threats against me in 2018. And it was so bad and so traumatic that I ended up developing type 2 diabetes as a result of the stress. I went to Bishop Sticka of Knoxville for help, knowing that he knew some of the players, and he only, he only added to the problem. That brings us to Vos Estes Lux Mundi, Uh, June 2019, uh, the Pope's law that was supposed to his, that was supposedly the Pope's Bill of Rights for Survivors. That's what Vos Estes, Lux Mundi Vos Estes is, is it's supposed to be a Bill of Rights of Survivor, for survivors that's supposed to prevent what happened to me, that prevent the abuse of the abused, to ensure uniform treatment of survivors. The problem is that Vos Estes is not being enforced. It's a false hope, a sham a fraud, a cruel taunt directed at survivors. Vos estes lux mundi. Vos estes is a mere PR exercise designed to placate the laity, not help survivors. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe the church could do this, look at, my, look at the cover art for my podcast. Look at my treatment at the massive reparation and what's happened to me since at Easter 2021. So again, my, co- my core concern is that if they can do that to me, out in the open, in an area crawling with the press, what else can the Catholic Church and the Archdiocese of St. Louis rationalize, justify, doing to innocent children most of all, still? So there's a reason I call my podcast Sacrificed. In January 2020, I was researching service histories, an idea I got from the movie Spotlight, researching service histories of abusers, of Father Valentine, and of a man I call Bishop X. And I found a document. I discovered what I come to call the program. If you look at that document, especially the last three lines of that document, you'll see a pattern. Reverend Hubert Creason, 1972 to 1978. Reverend Roger McDonough, 1978 to 1981. Reverend Leroy Valentine, 1981 to 1982. It wasn't a mistake. Mistakes were not made. It was a decision made by the mid-1970s, a plan to manage, if not protect, the church and not children a program, and created a tragedy affecting hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people. And the big question, the thing that drives me crazy, that keeps me up at night, is the question of whether anything has changed. And based on what I know about Knoxville and what's going on with Bishop Sticka, the answer to that question is no. The Catholic Church and bishops of the Catholic Church are still defending and enabling rapists. So what exactly has changed? (sighs) However, despite all that, in the process that I went through, I was still gifted with reasons for hope. It's Easter Two thousand fourteen and I've lost everything. My marriage, my family, my job. I'm bankrupt. Have been for five years since two thousand nine. You know, nominally I've got shared custody, joint custody of my kids, but you know, kids are kids and they wanted to spend Easter with their with their cousins, which I understand. So what I would do to see them, sometimes I would see them during the day. But what I would do, to, what I would do to see them is that I would stand in the back of the church and try to catch a glimpse of them. You know, I, I don't know if, if I've ever attended Easter Mass or Christmas Mass at Mary Queen of Peace Our Parish and been able to sit down during the Mass. You know, I'm always standing up, maybe making room for my mother-in-law or my father-in-law or someone else in the pew. I'm always standing in the back of the pew or I'm or in the back of the church or I'm outside on the steps with a little kid who doesn't, who doesn't want to stand still for this, for the course of the mass. So I'm used to being in the back of the church. And what I would do, what I did on Easter 2014 is I played a game with myself where instead of dealing with the reality of the situation, I would pretend that I'm not separated from my kids. I'm just in the back of the church like always. So I'm standing there. And to my left, out of the corner of my left eye, I see someone walking towards me. And it's me. It's me when I'm a kid. It's not me, but it's, it's someone who looks exactly like me, uh, who who brings to mind a photograph from those days from my time with Father Valentine. You see at, at Immaculata or at Mary Queen of Peace uh they didn't well for one thing they didn't really have altar boys they were mostly altar girls and the altar girls didn't wear the black cassocks with the white surplices over them instead they wore these kind of what these white robes or albs uh So I hadn't, and even at Mary, Queen of Peace, they actually changed to using the white robes. So I hadn't seen, you know, the the classic getup, the window curtain stuff over the black alb thing. I hadn't seen that in 20 or 30 years. But so I'm standing there, Easter 2014, kind of leaning up against the doorframe in the very back of the church of, of Mary, Queen of Peace. And to my left, comes walking this guy dressed exactly like that and it it just sends me back to when i was a kid and he's got incense and uh that triggers me uh, mackalotta my original parish was a big incense parish mary queen of peace was not a big incense parish and i think that's one of the reasons that triggered me is that i hadn't seen incense in forever since, I, since my time at Immaculata and all of a sudden there's all this incense around me, I'm surrounded by clouds of incenses. they're standing in front of me waiting to process down the front of the church. And they process down and, and what happens is that every time I blink, my eye level changes, it bounces up and down. And I realize what I'm doing is that every time I blink, I'm cycling between being myself and being the 11 or 12 year old version of me. I'm rapid cycling between the two between the two states which is incredibly disturbing and disorienting and eventually I just get so dizzy that I have to get out of there. So I go home and the night before I'd been watching the movie The Passion of the Christ. I picked it up the night before at the garden of the of Gethsemane. And it's, so I go home, I turn on the TV, and The Passion of the Christ is on again, same channel. And this time it's at the beginning of it. And I watch it through once, and I actually, I think I, I watched it twice. I watched it twice that day, because something struck me, which was the courage and love that Jesus Christ demonstrated on Palm Sunday. And what hit me is that despite everything that I was dealing with, and this is 2014, The Matrix had just come out, I felt like I didn't exist. I'd been dealing with the 2013, you know, the the permanent removal of Valentine, and I was never contacted, which compounded with The Matrix in 2014, gave me this feeling that I didn't exist. Uh, I realized something, which is that... If Jesus Christ could do what He did on Palm Sunday, entering Jerusalem to a certain and known fate, that I could do this. That I could continue, that I could continue to fight, to try to help survivors and maybe help myself, but at a minimum, ensure or do everything I could to ensure that what happened to me. Would not happen again, that it wouldn't happen to anyone else. Which is how in 2018, in September 2018, I ended up on the steps of the Mass of Reparation, the steps of the Cathedral Basilica, the Archdiocese of St. Louis, right before the Mass of Reparation, about 45 minutes before the Mass of Reparation, I was, I lined up there standing with my. So I'm standing on the sidewalk about 60 feet from the doors of the Cathedral Basilica, the new cathedral in St. Louis. And I'm standing as close as I can get without being arrested. My toes, I'm standing on the sidewalk with my toes against the first of the steps of the first flight of steps. And basically the way it's set up is you've got a row of steps, then a plaza that's about 30 feet wide, then another row of steps, then another shorter plaza that's 10 or 15, or that's 15 or 20 feet across. So I'm standing there holding a sign. And first two women who work for the Archdiocese of St. Louis come and, and say something to me. They say something supportive to me. How they're praying for me and how they don't like how survivors are being treated. Then a group of nuns come by and these are these are not the order nuns, not habits. These are short haired, comfortable shoes nuns. The liberal nuns. <laughs> Thank God for the liberal nuns. Uh they're they're feisty. Uh they say something to me. And I, I've never really understood the the phrase "I feel seen" and the importance of being seen, but on that day I understood it because I I was seen. And then and then things get really bad, because so from my left, around the corner of the new cathedral, the the cathedral basilica, the archdiocese of St. Louis, come a hundred priests all dressed in these off white robes seems like it's the entirety of the priesthood of the Archdiocese of St. Louis it's probably every it's probably every priest who didn't have something else to do and they all come around the corner to my left and start lining up on the plaza the top plaza right before the doors of the cathedral basilica and you know they're lined up 2 by 2 uh ready to process into the cathedral basilica but the thing is the thing that's so difficult is that They were standing there for 10 minutes on that plaza, maybe 30 or 40 feet from me. And during that time, none of them would even look at me. They wouldn't acknowledge my existence, no wave. Nobody came over to talk to me, nothing. And the worst part was a priest who I think I know or knew from Mary, Queen of Peace, he actually turned in my direction. But instead of looking at me, he made a point of looking over me his eye level went yeah it was uh his eye level went here and then it went over my head and then down he did this complete scan of the area that i was standing but he made a point of not looking at me he very obviously was afraid of acknowledging my existence or looking at me or had been told not to look at me. But every single one of the priests of the Archdiocese of St. Louis, the priests gathered just feet away from me. None of them would look at me. And that was terrifying and disorienting because, you know, as I said, I had these two experiences in 2013 in 2014, it made me feel like I didn't exist where the Archdiocese of St. Louis was treating me like I didn't exist. And then 2018, I had the smear campaign began, the allegations of the false allegations that I'd made terroristic threats. So I was under a lot of pressure. Well, what struck me, and, and it was so stressful that my whole body started to lock up. You know, I had, every muscle in my body was constricting such that when it was over, I tried to step and I fell, I fell down because my body was just a, a solid mass of constricted muscle. But what struck me at the time was that compared to what Jesus Christ went through on the cross, what I was going through was nothing. And I realized that if Jesus Christ could do what he did on Palm Sunday, entering Jerusalem to a certain and known fate, then I could do this. And that gave me the courage and the strength to keep standing there to represent myself and the other survivors and be seen. Even if they weren't seeing me, I was there, and I knew I was being seen, and I knew they could see me, and I was taking strength from the example of Jesus Christ, and I was standing there, and I knew I would stand there, you know i wasn't afraid it was very stressful and it was very difficult but my fear kind of melted away as i came to realize that i was standing there following the example of jesus christ and that goes to my faith you know i'm minimally a catholic i've got one pinky toe left in the Catholic Church. But the funny thing is, is, I'm still a Christian. I'm actually a stronger Christian. I really get Jesus Christ and what he was about. Yes, I was alone at the Mass of Reparation. And since the Archdiocese of St. Louis is still continuing to isolate me, they that's what they did at Easter the, 2021. It's very easy to feel alone because the Archdiocese of St. Louis is trying to make it really clear to me that not only am I alone, but that I don't exist. But the fact is the reality is that I'm far from alone now. I've got Jesus Christ to keep me company. And I've got all these other people that I've met. I've got my editor, the person I call the goater, who turned me into a much better writer, who took me beyond just a linear telling of my story Uh, Who asked these crazy questions? What was that like? How did that feel? You know, when I was doing my kind of survivor, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, that person would jump in and ask me these questions about okay, don't just tell me what happened, but how did it feel? Which just, you know, absolutely transformed my writing. I've got Father Mark White, who's not only supporting survivors, but also going through hell because of what he's doing. I've got my fellow survivors who communicate with me. I've got the people who've interviewed me for their podcasts, who've seen me, who helped me understand that I do exist. I've got the people who hosted me in Virginia. I've got everyone who follows me on Twitter and everyone who attends my talks. The group's not big. The group is small but it's passionate and it's full of love. It's, it's a rebel alliance, like in the early days of the church. It's people taking care of each other. And it is exactly what Christ's church was at the beginning and what it's meant to be. And it's not going to discourage me what the Catholic church has become and what they're doing and what they're doing to me. That's not Christ's church. Christ's church is the people that I'm meeting and talking to and the people who are supporting me and the people who are supporting other survivors. That's Christ's church and what it was meant to be. And if Jesus Christ can do what he did, then I can do this. So what I'm trying to do is get the word out. And I'm doing that by by giving these talks i gave two talks in virginia at the end of uh, june 2021 if you would like to join the rebel alliance and host a talk let's talk give me a call you can my email is ivan does at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter and direct message me at ivan does not i don't charge anything all i need is a sofa to crash on it would be nice if you would pass the hat for gas money although I do have some people kind of funding me independently who can fund trips if if groups of people who want to hear me talk if people who want to host me don't necessarily have their own resources I have some some I'm developing sources of funding people who are supporting me and it's it's really it's encouraging and it's touching and it's amazing If you don't believe in the problem I would argue that the resistance to the idea, what is being done to me, what's being done to Father Mark is proof of the existence of the problem. They wouldn't run a smear campaign if they weren't afraid of me. They wouldn't do to Father Mark what they're doing if they weren't afraid of me and of us and of what we're doing. And if you want to help, I'd suggest what you can do. If you can't host a talk, or prior to toasting a talk, what you can do is you can press the issue with your priest and your bishops and your fellow parishioners and get people talking about the issue. Let people know that you don't like what's going on. Get people talking. That's the key thing. And I know it's scary, but if Jesus Christ can do what he did, entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to a certain and known fate, then you and I and we can do this. So let me answer some questions, some of the questions that came up as a result of my talks in Virginia and some of the questions I've gotten over the years. And first, let me say that given the questions that people have as a result of my talks with Father Mark White, I've set up an FAQ on my website you can find it at chrisleary.com sacrificed. I also did a survivor Q&A, both in vlog and podcast form several months ago. You can find that on chrisleary.com slash sacrificed. And let me say before I get into the questions, if you have a question about any aspect of my story, please email me and ask me your question. You're not going to offend or trigger me. The odds are I've asked it myself <laughs> probably a hundred times. Uh, first, in terms of my GoFundMe, uh, my fa- my financial situation is best described as dire. If you'd like to help support my efforts to create this podcast and expose the abuse of the abused uh, by the Catholic Church and the program, or to just help me eat and pay my bills while I'm focused on this project, while I'm trying to get this stuff done, I've set up a GoFundMe, uh, Chris O'Leary, Survivor GoFundMe. You can find it by Google. You can also find it on my website, com slash sacrificed. In terms of why me, why things are being done to me, it's a, it's a good and probably the best question was posed to me on the Dave Glover show in June 2019 when Glover asked me, quote, So here's what I don't understand. If it's pretty common knowledge that this guy did it, why are you singled out as, but I bet this kid's lying? I didn't get the answer to the question. I didn't get the reason at the time. But it's obvious that the answer is that I'm a threat to Dolan. They've admitted that Valentine is bad, but they have to keep attacking me in order to protect Dolan because I connect Dolan and Valentine. Again, the narrative of the Archdiocese of St. Louis is that, okay, Valentine was a bad guy, but he didn't start doing anything before 1982. If you look at the matrix, that's obviously the narrative the Archdiocese of St. Louis is trying to to craft. The problem is, the problem with me and my story is that I established that Valentine offended before 1982, which then puts Valentine and Dolan together together while Valentine was offending from 1977 to 1979, Adam Macalata, and establishes that Father Dolan, then Bishop Dolan, now Timothy Cardinal Dolan, saw and turned a blind eye to the abuse of me and others. And in order to continue with this narrative, the Archdiocese of St. Louis is willing to commit perjury, and that's scary because the Catholic Church still thinks that it's above the law. And what's scarier still is the idea and the absence of zero tolerance. Zero tolerance has its limits. And that's, that's why Marie Collins keeps handle, hammering on the topic of zero tolerance. Yes, things are better. Unless you happen to be abused by or around a person like Cardinal Dolan. In which case, you know, sucks to be you. The Catholic Church has to protect these guys. There's zero tolerance except for the powerful people, which is terrifying. It means that kids are safer unless they're abused by or around people like Timothy Cardinal Dolan, and that's terrifying, and that's unacceptable. So one question I got when I was in Virginia in the first, first uh, presentation, first talk at Virginia is a guy was objecting. It was weird. He was This guy was trying to say he was a supporter of mine, but he was also objecting to the child protection training. They call it Virtus in Virginia. In St. Louis, it's called Protecting God's Children. If you want to be a supporter of survivors, then you need to take that training seriously. At a minimum, you need to enforce and follow the two-man rule, which basically says that no adult should be alone with a child. If that rule had been followed, then what happened to me would have been impossible. There are other things, you know, theoretically, no adult should be alone in a car with a kid. At a minimum, no, you know, if you have to drive a kid, the kid should not ride shotgun, you should make the kid ride in the back of the car. I've done that before. You know, a kid gets left alone at at practice and their parents can't or won't come and get them or you can't get in touch with them what i do in that situation is i make it up an excuse about the airbag being broken and now the kid has to sit in the back of the car i know some i i have some concerns about that training how the training sessions may be too long how they may be held too frequently i don't think the training is always necessary if you're just giving a talk to someone and there're going to be other people around who are trained. You don't necessarily have to go through the training, but, you know, so, you know, maybe three hours every year or every two years is too much. But the the question I ask for people who object to Virtus or Protecting God's Children or whatever you call it is what is a child's life worth? I think it's worth three hours every year or every couple of years. You know, I'd like to talk to people about maybe shortening the duration of that so that people are more likely to go through that training. You know, I could see an hour every three years or so being necessary, being appropriate, because it really isn't complicated. A lot of it is the two-man rule. The two-man rule is what the Boy Scouts employ, and I've, I've followed that, and it follows pretty well, and it would have would have handled my situation, would have protected me and us. In terms of where were my parents, my parents were literally at the Greenbrier, at least during the worst stuff, during the special training During the very worst stuff. Uh, For some of the earlier stuff, the risk and pizza party, my mom dropped me off. I remember being in the car and her dropping me off and my running into the rectory where Father Valentine was and Father Dolan was and Monsignor Flavin was. That was the coolest damn thing in the world that could have happened. The rectory at Immaculata, I've, I felt, was the safest place place in the world, and it was an honor and it was a privilege, and my parents believed that it was an honor and a privilege, and it was the safest place in the world for a child. That's where my parents were. I, I got I this question a lot, and it is a good question. So what did my parents say and do when I told them? Did they believe me? That's a tough one because of this story. So in fourth grade, so this is so fourth grade would be, I believe it, that's when the face to face confession was going on. And I know it was I know for sure that it was when the Risk and Pizza party and the wrestling and the TV room stuff and maybe some of the up in the up in Father Valentine's room stuff was happening. By fourth grade, my fourth grade teacher Mrs. Martinego had seen stuff and was concerned about it. And she went to my mom at some point in fourth grade and told my mom that there was something wrong with me. Basically, I went, and I never understood it at the time. I'm still figuring it out. I'm literally figuring it out like, like today or yesterday. I went from being popular to being weird in fourth grade. Uh, and Mrs. Martinego told my mom that something was going on. Uh, and the problem was is that my parents were not psychologists. They were just regular people. My dad did go to the library and tried to read up on it, but you know he's a lawyer, not a psychologist. The mistake my parents made is they never took me to a doctor, it was, that, that actually, that topic came up during one of my therapy sessions, where one of my psychologists asked me, okay, so what did your doctor say? And I'm like, what are you talking about? What did, what did my doctor say about what? What did, your doc, what did your doctor say when you told them about all this stuff that was going on? And I'm like, I never saw a doctor. My parents never took me to a doctor which is hard to process. But, you know, despite that, I am lucky. There were two guys that I know of, I know them personally, who immediately after being abused told their parents and were immediately told to never speak of it again. And that really screws guys up. You know, one guy has a real problem with alcoholism. Another guy, I think he's doing better, but his parents have never seen their grandchildren My parents at least, well, you know, at the time, they didn't do anything. It wasn't definitive. I, you know, I never told my parents, you know, Father Valentine is doing stuff to me because I didn't understand it. So it's not like my parents had a smoking gun. In terms of today, my parents are helping me financially financially. You know, like as I said, I'm devastated financially. I'm surviving, but I'm not th- not thriving. I I fought cancer. I've got the scars to prove it. I ended up with a six thousand dollar bill for the surgery for that scar. This is a six thousand dollar scar. Uh, I was fighting cancer from 2013 to 2016. So at the same time, I was fighting the archdiocese of St. Louis to try to get help. I was fighting cancer. I was in a car accident about three years ago dealing with post-concussion syndrome. I'm still dealing with post-concussion syndrome nearly three years later. My parents are helping me, trying to help me get through that stuff. And my parents did help me with therapy starting in 2002. That's one of the frustrating things is that 2002 spotlight, all that stuff, I immediately started having problems but I didn't know why or what. And I never even thought about the Father Valentine stuff because Cardinal Dolan told me nothing happened. But so I started therapy again in 2002 and my parents started paying for it. You know, I knew that something was going on. I just didn't know what. Again, when I was a child, I went from being popular to being weird, I went from being an extrovert to an introvert. In 2002, you know, other stuff was happening basically. I went from being very easygoing to being very irritable. That's basically what happened in 2002, and my parents started paying for therapy. But the problem was is that I'd ruled out all the Father Valentine stuff and all the sex abuse stuff because Cardinal Dolan sent me on a wild goose chase, and I spent all this time and money, tens of thousands of dollars, twenty, dollars $30,000 uh, on, and you can see it irritates me, uh, going from one therapist to another dealing with different diagnoses, adult ADHD, Asperger's syndrome, all this stuff. It's just frustrating to know that in, you know, with the spotlight stuff, I I immediately reacted to it. Even though Cardinal Dolan told me nothing happened, I immediately started reacting to it. I have this... Story my mom told me that in the spring or summer of 2002, you know, within weeks after my spotlight stuff, my now ex-wife was was talking with my to my mom on the sofa holding my infant daughter in one hand and my younger son is cowering over in the corner and my now ex-wife is weeping about how I've changed and how I'm different and there's something wrong with me and nobody knows what's going on. And obviously, I was just reacting to the spotlight stuff, to the revelation that the reality that Valentine was an abuser made something click inside my head, but it wasn't something that was conscious. And again, Dolan gave me a clean bill of health in 2002. An independent psychologist gave me a clean bill of health in 2002. I knew that the problem by the spring of 2002, the summer of 2002, I knew I had a problem, but I didn't know that the problem was Valentine because Dolan had sent me on a wild goose chase. I do talk about it with my mom some. It upsets her. She thinks about it all the time and often comes to me crying. My dad won't discuss it. I'm not sure why. I think he feels betrayed by the church. He was a true believer in the church. It's also difficult for him because he, you know, a friend that he admired was an abuser. In terms of whether I was able to get counseling, yes, but. The Archdiocese of St. Louis has nothing to help survivors despite Vosestis. The only thing the Archdiocese of St. Louis will do is that if you don't have the name of a psychologist, they will give you the name of a psychologist. They won't pay for anything. And I've got the Archdiocese of St. Louis on tape admitting that. Over the years, I've seen something like thirteen psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, that kind of stuff. I've had to pay for everything, or my parents have had to pay for everything. That's in the order of twenty to thirty thousand dollars. You know, that's all worsened by the fact that in two thousand two Cardinal Dolan told me that nothing happened. Nancy Brown told me that I was just misinterpreting stuff. They sent me on a wild goose chase exploring all these diagnoses that really didn't make any sense what i thought was adult adhd was actually ptsd what i was dealing with was ptsd the irritability uh, the personality change stuff that happened in the spring of 2002 as a result of the spotlight stuff was ptsd and complex ptsd it crushes me that in 2013, when Vi- when Valentine was permanently removed, they never bothered to call me, much less help me or warn me. That's very hard to deal with. Uh, my most recent therapist, when my dad stopped wanting to pay her, ended up she ended up doing things for free, but the problem is, is that she was a Catholic and had a really hard time with the stories I was telling her, a hard time believing the stories that I was telling her, so that our therapy sessions essentially turned into gaslighting because she would talk about how Dolan was such a nice guy and how he probably just didn't understand and how my archbishop was such a nice guy. He's a good man. No, they're not They're not good men. They're terrible men. In terms of, did the Archdiocese of St. Louis know about Father Valentine when they sent him to Immaculata? Again, there's a reason I call the podcast sacrifice. There's the document that I found that, provides evidence of the existence of the program. (laughs) And then also, uh, one of the rules of the internet is to don't read the comments. But one of the things I learned is to start reading the comments. And in the comments to one article about Father Valentine and the situation with Father Valentine, I found an allegation from a guy named James Turner uh, where he talked about what happened to him, what Valentine did to him when he was a kid. There's also the matrix, uh, which suggests that the Archdiocese of St. Louis knew what was going on, which is why they they tried and were able to cover things up. And, and And what really cuts me is that there was a story that my dad told me when I was a kid about Monsignor Flavin. We had this one priest who talked very strangely in a very affected manner. And I remember I once asked my dad about him and what the deal was. And My dad told me that Monsignor Flavin was good at working with troubled priests who had problems. I didn't know what that meant. I thought that just meant counseling or something. I knew, you know, at the time I I was 10 or something, 11 or 12. I knew about counseling and I knew that was a thing. And I just thought that's what Monsignor Flavin was doing. But It turns out that more likely what was happening is that that was the program, that the Immaculata was part of the program, which was a program to manage and protect abusers that included Immaculata and Mary Queen of Peace, and that's what I discovered in January 2020. In terms of enabling, uh, how can lay people not enable the hierarchy? Uh, So one of my... One of the reasons I think I'm on a mission for God is all the coincidences. In senior year of college, uh, I was flying back for probably Christmas vacation, uh, and I wasn't—I didn't fly Southwest like I normally did. I was instead flying TWA, and I ended up getting bumped into first class next to the director of design engineering for McDonnell Douglas, which was this crazy coincidence because I was trying to figure out what to do with my life and a career at McDonnell Douglas was something I was considering. So I ended up telling this guy, this McDonnell Douglas guy, about my thoughts and everything. And, and he, he gave me a good piece of advice, which is don't romanticize it. it. Turns out the aerospace industry was very different than I thought it was. And basically, what I was looking for and was interested in didn't exist anymore which is why he told me don't romanticize it and that's what i would tell lay people people who want to be helpful in terms of the sex abuse crisis don't romanticize it i know it's the church and there's god and jesus and all that stuff but the fact is is that these are men and they're vulnerable to satan what greater prize could there be for satan than the church the catholic church the original church of christ these are men who are being targeted by satan In a lot of cases, you should do the opposite of what my parents and what the parents of Immaculata did. Uh, Engage. Don't disengage. Don't go away. Stay in fight. Speak up and out to priests and bishops. Don't kiss the ring. Ask about Vos Estes. Follow the example of Father Mark White, who is talking about this stuff. Talk about it. Talk about it with other people. Let people know that you don't like what's going on. Don't take no for an answer. For the women out there, be a B word. Be a broad. If they're not calling you a broad, you're probably not pressing hard enough. Be curious. Don't idolize or romanticize this. No unquestioning deference. Again, follow the example of Father Mark White. Understand that you cannot trust the hierarchy still the hierarchy is where allegations go to die still despite everything despite Vosestis. you need to take personal responsibility for the safety of children it's your responsibility because you cannot trust the hierarchy take the training seriously follow the two man rules don't allow exceptions anybody who's pushing for an exception that's a that's a potential threat what happened next in terms of since high school, I discussed that before. I also discuss it uh, at length in my podcast, and especially in two episodes, uh, What's the Big Deal, Episode 1 and Episode 2. How have I kept my faith? How do I go to Mass? Well, the fact is I haven't been to Mass since Easter 2014. It's very hard for me to even set foot in a church. Uh when i had to go in a church to attend a graduation or recital of my younger daughter i'd sit in the very last row or stand with my back to the wall <laughs> right next to the door and then leave as soon as i could i haven't been to, i haven't been to mass since easter 2014 it's just the flashbacks are too much uh what did i do to report my abuse well the fact is i didn't understand that it was abuse as i said some of these were my most cherished memories when I felt special and singled out. That's why I use the term special training. And I was told, you know, when it came to the special training stuff, you know, I shouldn't, that by Father Valentine, he told me I shouldn't be teaching this stu- you do this stuff, but uh, I'm, I'm not supposed to teach you this stuff, but I know you're mature enough to handle it and to keep it quiet. This is a secret between you and me. That's the gist of how Father Valentine sold the secret training stuff. I, I didn't remember the worst stuff. It was blacked out. It was repressed. I have been able to recover that in, in therapy basically by, you know, the, the memory of bailing out of the rectory, which starts with my hand on the the door, the screen door of the West door of the rectory. I've been able to roll that memory back and, you know, okay, where was I five seconds before and five seconds before that? Uh, I did react to stuff when I was a kid. I have memories of panic attacks in fourth grade and seventh grade. I think after stuff and in the presence of Father Valentine. Uh, and it just kills me that Mrs. Martinago told my mom and told her that there was something wrong and that my parents didn't do anything. But the fact is they weren't psychologists. My dad was a lawyer. My mom was a math teacher. They, They didn't know any better. How many survivors go go public? The fact is it's a tiny fraction, maybe 1 in 10 or 1 in 100. It's like an iceberg. You know, I know of 15 guys who are abused by Valentine or likely were, and I'm I'm the only one who's gone public. And that number, just at Immaculata, could easily get up to 50 or 100. And one of the reasons survivors don't go public is because they've seen what's been done to me, the smear campaign. And they, you know, they they don't want to go through it. In terms of how did I feel during the abuse, that's hard to talk about. Uh, when it came to the special training, I didn't feel anything because I was distracted. He gave me this task to perform with consecrated hosts, and I was so focused on not dropping the consecrated host, the, the body of Jesus Christ, that I didn't notice what he was doing with his hands down there. Some of the stuff... I did notice and didn't like the hugging during a face to face confession, but you know, I was in denial. You know, it's Father Valentine. You know, the Nancy Brown, the the, the psychologist Dolan sent me to in March two thousand two, told me I was misinterpreting things, and I think I I said that myself during the act that I was misinterpreting this. You know, this can't be bad. It's Father Valentine. Come on. It was very confusing. I ended up with gender confusion issues. I didn't understand I hadn't have any concept of homosexuality. So I didn't understand how a man could or would do that to a boy unless he thought he was a unless he thought he was a girl, so I had gender confusion issues. Uh, the fact that you know, like during the haircut stuff or being up in Father Valentine's room, the lack of a reaction from Father Dolan made me think that it was not a big deal, not a thing. Again, during the hugging, I was ambivalent. On the one hand, I liked the contact. My dad was not a big hugger. I think he was taught not to hug. And I went through a phase where I kind of craved the hugging, and that's how Valentine got at me, was by taking advantage of that desire on my part. And in terms of the worst stuff, what I did was I disappeared into my head. I dissociated, like in the movie Split. And that's why... The treatment of the Archdiocese of St. Louis is so difficult the way they just ignore me and treat me like I don't exist as they did in 2013 when they permanently removed Valentine as they did in 2014 with The Matrix when they never, when they actually left me out of The Matrix, committed perjury as they did in 2018 at the Mass of Reparation. That triggered this dissociation stuff, this, this stuff that you see in the movie Split. It's not exactly like the movie Split but there are aspects of it that are that are problematic. In terms of why the press is ignoring me, I think the St. Louis press is protecting the Archdiocese and protecting the city of St. Louis. St. Louis is now worse than Boston in Spotlight, and people don't want that to come out. They're, they're enabling the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and that the same is true for both of the attorneys, the most recent attorneys general of the state of Missouri, Senator Josh Hawley, and current Attorney General Eric Schmidt are, I know Schmidt's a Catholic and he's enabling the Catholic Church. Uh, They did terrible things to me and, or Schmidt did terrible things to me. I've got that on tape and KMOV and KSDK both are sitting on that video. They won't just, they won't run that video. In terms of the post-dispatch, I think they're in the KMOX, they, they don't want to tell people what they don't want to hear. I do think the problem is the editors and not the reporters. I do have some corroboration problems. I have a hard time getting people to come forward and talk about what happened to them because, again, they see what's been done to me. But, uh, you know, the New York Times has had my story and they, they made the decision not to follow up on my story before they even discovered any of the corroboration issues. In terms of what did Dolan know, I addressed the topic of what Dolan knew and did and when in the episode of my podcast entitled My Friend the Cardinal. In some uh you know, he he saw stuff. Stuff was going on, how could he not see it? It was happening in the rectory in which he and Monsignor Flavin lived, and eventually Dolan Dolan just turned a blind eye to it. And then in two thousand two, what Dolan was allowed by Cardinal Regali to cover up what he did and what he did not do in the late seventies at Immaculata, at least. Has Dolan apologized? No. He's never addressed, much less apologized for, anything I've said. His only response has been to block me on Twitter. The people at the Angry Catholic Show asked him for a comment. Uh, He never got back to them. He's never responded to the Church Militant article or the Religion Digital article that talked about my allegations, which is at least a thing. He hasn't denied it. He hasn't sued me for it. I do at some point plan to go to New York City to try to talk to Dolan, uh, at a minimum, I plan to stand vigil out in front of St Patrick's Cathedral uh what should the church do to abusers well above above all else, you should not the church should not just cut them loose uh that's what the the church did to my abuser, Father Leroy Valentine, in late March two thousand two for some period of time. He lived somewhere random. I've heard it was with his mom in a private residence, unsecured, unsupervised. God only knows how many people Valentine abused during that time. It's a completely irresponsible thing to do. Uh, Valentine at some point was pulled back in and lived at Regina Cleary, the retirement home for retired priests. I don't know if they have any security or supervision there or if he was allowed to come and go if he was monitored. But by not just cutting these guys loose, that creates an incentive for the Catholic Church to screen priests better. You break it, you buy it. The Catholic Church should not just cut these people loose. I know that's that's hard for Catholics to follow, that their money's going to supporting abusers, but it's better that abusers are confined and monitored then they are cut loose. But that assumes that the Catholic Church is confining and monitoring these guys. And really the the best option is they should be in prison. The Catholic Church doesn't want to run a prison. And that's a problem. How can lay people support survivors? You know, it starts with talking about survivors and our plight and how you feel about it. Talking about it with your friends, your priests, your bishops, making it clear that you don't like what's happening. How do you hold the hierarchy accountable? First off, you know, don't leave. Stay and fight. Second, again, let them know you don't like what's being done. Tell your priests, tell your bishops, you know, be a pain in the ass. Let them know you don't like what's being done to survivors, that you find it unacceptable. I suspect that the, that the church and bishops and priests see silence as a they think they're protecting the church and its money, and they think that by not talking about it, not speaking up, they think that you're agreeing, that, that, that you're basically telling them you're doing what we want you to do. What else needs to change besides minimizing and covering up? Well, survivors need help. Again, the Archdiocese of St. Louis, despite Vos Estes, does, does nothing to help survivors. Survivors need to be helped, actually Otherwise, and the fact is that the hypocrisy will kill the Catholic Church. You think people are leaving now. You think the young people are leaving now. Wait till they find out about the abuse of the abused. Are the Catholic League and Bill Donahue supportive of survivors? No, not at all. They see us as the enemy and, by and large, liars. They see us as people who are out to rob the church blind. Bill Donahue of the Catholic League is a prime example of an enabler. He's a blind supporter of the church and the bishops, and in my experience, no friend of survivors. Bill Donahue of the Catholic League is the problem and not the solution. In terms of networks of survivors, yes, there are networks of survivors. The problem is they don't have the money to help with therapy. I don't like group therapy for whatever reason. I do think that SNAP, in many cases, is too angry to be effective, which is one of the reasons I'm on my own. If people ask me that if I'm with SNAP, I just say, no, I'm on my own. I'm with me. Uh, One of the problems is that, all right, the biggest problem, I'm just thinking about this, the biggest problem with SNAP is that, by and large, they're outside of the church. If anything is going to change, it needs to be done from inside the church. We need lay Catholics who are still inside the Catholic church to start talking about this and objecting about this and making it clear to priests and bishops and their fellow par- fellow parishioners that this isn't acceptable the abuse of the abused is not acceptable and lay catholics who are still within the catholic church need to make that clear to their fellow catholics their priests and their bishops survivors need allies inside the church i don't want you to leave i want you to stay and fight so, where is Jesus leading the Church? I don't know. I don't presume to know. I do think this is Satan. I think Satan is calling from inside the Church. I think this is a test. This is evil. This is why bad things happen. Satan has got his cause into the Catholic Church. Now, a lot of people would deny that, but that's all that is. It's just denial. People have free will. The bishops have free will. The priests where the enablers have free will lay Catholics have free will. Good people are refusing to act. They are refusing to take personal responsibility. And just look at the past, you know, how well did delegating go in the past? How well did my parents delegating the safety of me and others go in the past? How well did do you think delegating the safety of your children and of the children of your parish, how well do you think that's going to go? How well is it going right now? What are they doing to me and to other survivors? What are they doing to Father Mark White? People are constantly giving me the the phrase from the Bible, the gates of hell will not prevail. Well, the key word there is prevail. That means that the gates of hell will not win but that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a battle. We are in the middle of a battle for the life of the Catholic Church. If you want to see the Catholic Church succeed and live and thrive, you're going to have to start fighting. And I know that's scary and it's intimidating. These guys are powerful and it goes against everything that you've been taught. But the fact is that if Jesus Christ can do what he did, on Palm Sunday, entering Jerusalem to a certain and known fate, then you and I and we can do what's necessary.